Hello and welcome to The Retiring Room. I'm Charlotte. And I'm Katie. And we are your co-hosts. We've got a great episode lined up for you today that we've had the most amazing fun researching. But before we launch into alchemy, philosophy and some slightly mind-melting questions, we just wanted to say a little bit about the present situation and what it means for both us and the podcast, because I think it's fair to say there's been a level of upheaval going on for both of us. So I was planning a move to Sweden for the beginning of April, but from the beginning of March, it became clear that it had to change. So within 48 hours, I had packed up all of my life, moved a lot of stuff to my parents' house and jumped on a plane to Sweden. And I was super confused by this because I didn't find out you were moving to Sweden early until after the fact. Yeah. (laughs) So I can't lay claim to anything quite as dramatic as fleeing the country. Although it is fair to say that my life is fairly well upside down as it is for the vast majority of us here on lockdown in the UK. The point is we don't know what this crisis holds for us, for any of us really. But we wanted to reassure you that we are going to do our absolute best to keep recording and releasing episodes every fortnight because we understand that a little extra escapism does not go amiss in times like this. Something will inevitably happen and send everything sideways, but until it does, you're stuck with us. Yeah, and as always, follow us on all the social media and if there's any disruption, we'll let you know there first. Yes, we will. All right, so should we get right into the podcast then? I think we should. (laughs) Yeah, so this week we're talking about the alethiometer, one of the His Dark Materials mentioned in the the title of the whole series. So first of all, Charlotte, what is the alethiometer? So the alethiometer is a small clockwork device and it's an instrument that tells you the truth. Mm -hmm. Alethia is the Greek root for truth and meter obviously means measure. So it's literally a truth measure, as Father Corum tells us when he's first explaining it to Lyra. And it is, I think, one of the biggest engines of the story, moving everything forward. It gives us information we need. It points out the next few steps along what's about to happen and foreshadows quite a lot as well. So it's a massively, massively important artefact. Yeah. It kind of functions a bit like a plot dump. I've always slightly been annoyed by the name because it's not a truth measure. It doesn't tell how much something is true. It tells the truth. I'm like, mm, so the, the name hurts a little. <laughs> so we find out a little bit about the history in the main trilogy. There's a lot more probably in the Book of Dust, but we're going to steer clear of that one. Mm-hmm. So the history as we know it mainly comes, first of all, from Father Coram, who met one in Uppsala. Mm-hmm. He was a younger man um, and knew knew a little bit about it. But the majority of the history comes from Dr. Lansalius. Mm-hmm. He tells that they were developed in Prague by a scholar um, who was trying to invent something else. Is that right? Yes. He was trying to discover a way of measuring the influences of the planets And I'm quoting from the book here. He intended to make a device that would respond to the idea of Mars or Venus as a compass responds to the idea of North. 
In that, he failed, but the mechanism he invented was clearly responding to something, even if no one knew what it was. Hmm. And as we now know, that influence is dust. But back then, quantifying consciousness was not very easy, as it is not to this day. Well, I was going to say, it's, it's not exactly a walk in the park now, but no. <laughs> you know, we, seem to, we seem to have a slightly better grip on it. Well, that's good. Okay, so that's we we don't so we don't really know a lot about its history. It's a very it's an instrument shrouded in mystery, I suppose you could say. Particularly as when Lyra gets her alethiometer, she knows that it's a very valuable object, if only because of other people's reactions to it. But she has no idea where hers came from. It came from the master of Jordan College, but no idea how he got it. It's ambiguous. <laughs> Yeah, very ambiguous. Mm. Yeah. So there are quite a few readers that we meet in the series. Yep. There is, well, there is firstly the master, although we never officially learn he is a reader himself. It's kind of implied that he is. Um, yeah, and you can guess maybe he's not the best reader in the world, but he's certainly able to get something from it. Yeah, And then, because there are not many lithiometers in the world, there aren't many readers, but the first one we see reading it is Fra Pavel, yeah. and he is reading it on behalf of Mrs. Coulter, trying to work out what the prophecy about Lyra is. Yeah. And then, so after that, we have Mr. Tukros Basilides, one of my favourite names in the series. Mine too. I'm not actually certain. I think he must come from Lyra's world, but not certain where in there. Yeah. And he reads on behalf of Lord Asriel and Lord Asriel's Republic. And he definitely seems to be a better reader than Fra Pavel. Yeah. Fra Pavel seems to be slow and methodical, but quite accurate. Just speed is not his specialty. Mr. Basilides is much faster, though we don't know how that affects his accuracy. No. And the only other reader we really meet is Dame Hannah Ralph. Yeah. So she, we meet her first in Northern Lights, and Lyra is thoroughly unimpressed with her. <laughs> I think the term she uses is frumpy, maybe, or something like that. Yeah, it's frumpy. She's very unimpressed by female scholars, which I'm sure we'll talk about some other time. Yes. Yes. And then we meet her again in The Amber Spyglass, where she seems a lot more interesting suddenly, out of the shadow of Mrs. Coulter. Yeah. And it's revealed she is a accomplished alethiometrist, and she promises to teach Lyra once she's lost the ability herself. Yeah. And she seems to be, of all of them, the best reader. Yeah. I would probably say. I think so. I, in terms of the adult readers who've learnt, she's definitely the best. I think Lyra's childhood readings are some of the strongest. Yeah. And we're going to be talking about that a lot later, I think, aren't we? Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. But Lyra's reading is talked about by people after she loses it as being a very different kind of reading. Definitely. And it's it's reading by grace, almost. Yeah. Which, once she becomes grown up, she loses. And she has to regain it through hard, hard work. Yes. A lifetime of hard work. Mm. Okay, so we know a few of the readers and a bit of the history of the thing now. How is it actually read, then? In terms of the mechanical operation, you have three hands that you can control and one needle that sort of swings independently. You point the three hands to three different symbols, which 
between their various meanings and your own conscious input will form a question. And then the, the fourth hand, the sort of needle bit, will swing around and point to different symbols. And the, the number of times it does that and the order in which it does that can be interpreted into the answer to your question. Mm, so you have to hold all of these symbols and all their different meanings in your head and track the movement constantly mm. while maintaining the question at the same time. It sounds an absolute nightmare to have that mindset. And a lot of the characters talk about the specific mindset you have to have. And I think, have you got the Keats quote? There? I have. Um, so you have to be capable mm. of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. Yes, yeah, so you have to just trust that the answer's coming and not try and grab it almost. Yeah. It definitely takes a very special kind of person. I'm not certain that I could do that. No, I don't think I could either, to be honest. Hmm. I've never particularly liked Keats, but if that's what he came up with, I think he had some moments then. I can, I can see that for sure. Yeah. Okay, so now we thought we'd go through some of the key moments the alethiometer through the books and give a few of our thoughts on them because as we worked out we have quite different thoughts on them we do so first off there's the moment where lyra is given the alethiometer by the master but that's not particularly interesting she isn't very interested by it she kind of plays with it like a toy almost at first but then the first real reading she gets is when the egyptian spies are returning and she doesn't completely understand the reading it, it's kind of she gets sort of key words almost, mm. but it's enough to understand the rough plot. And then the next one like that is the spy fly that is sent by Mrs. Coulter. Yeah. And Lyra gets stuck on, I think, the chameleon symbol. Yeah. And she can't quite understand what it means because what what what's the symbol of the chameleon? So the chameleon represents air. It's buried quite a long way down in the meanings so it's not immediately obvious and of course it means that the spy flies are coming from the air and because she can't unlock that one particular symbol right in the moment it comes to her later and that's why she doesn't spot the spy fly before it happens yeah so it's kind of an almost retroactive reading yeah but she got enough of it that it impressed Bardacorum and john far yeah and this is one of the big moments where it drives the plot forward because those two readings between them are what make John Farr and Farr accept her usefulness and that she should absolutely be coming along with them when they when they all head north. And it's it's that reading that puts her on her road north, which of course leads her to everything that happens. Yeah, absolutely. They don't want to bring this 12-year-old kid who is frankly quite useless in terms of all the other fighters that are coming, <laughs> but she has this ability and they can't afford to leave her behind because of that. No. And then it's while they're in the north that the next significant sort of pair of readings, I think, happen. Mm. The first is when she meets Dr. Lancelius in Trollesund and uses the alethiometer to prove her identity and get them the help that Lancelius can offer and won't give unless 
she can give him the right answer. It's such a, it's almost such a meaningless reading as well. Mm. Which of these cloud pines belongs to Serafina Pekela? And I think Lara says, oh, that was easy. It took me five seconds. Yeah. And it's so important to this person and to, I guess, the witch history. But to her, it just, it doesn't matter. It's simple. Yeah. And it propels forward both Lyra's story and the storyline that has the involvement of the witches that we were talking about over the last couple mm-hmm. of episodes. So it's it's not just driving Lyra forward, it's moving everybody forward in their various directions and not always towards the same thing. No, no, definitely not. It kind of kicks off a load of different lines yeah. and groups of people. Yeah. And it's such a tiny reading, I always... It reminds me of the butterfly effect almost. Yeah, I, th- I think it definitely is the butterfly effect. It's really interesting. Because then the next reading definitely does propel Lyra's story forward because it sends her to the cabin where she meets Tony Makarios. And the truth of what is happening at Bolvanger is revealed. And it's, again, she's not totally sure of absolutely everything it's telling her. But by this point, the alethiometer has definitely been set up as a real source of trust. She doesn't know what it's saying to her, but she knows that what it's saying is massively important and important enough to follow it, even when she doesn't totally know what's going on. Yeah, and the alethiometer from this point almost seems to have its own consciousness. And from this point, we probably will start talking about it almost as if it is a person. Mm. Because sending Lyra to the cabin, it really does feel like it is sending her. It wants her to go. It feels there's something she needs to see there. Yeah. And she can't quite understand the reading partly because she is so young and hasn't experienced some things that she can't interpret what it's saying is there because it's something Mm. beyond her imagining, a child without their demon. Yeah. But she gets this impression from the alethiometer that it wants her to go. Yeah. And it's really powerful how, how she interprets that. Yeah, it is. It's absolutely chilling, I think. I mean, I know, I know it's not Tony Macarios in the series, but that whole sequence yeah. where it's, it, it's really persuading her to go and find this horrendous thing that it can't quite tell her what it is. It's, it's a huge moment, I think. Yeah, definitely. That's probably one of the first moments that her innocence is really not, not destroyed, but definitely impacted. Definitely. The, the idea that there is such evil in the world that this could happen. Mm. It, it changes a lot of things from that point onwards. Mm. So the next real reading is when Lyra tricks Yuffa Rackneson on Svalvard, who is the Bear King. Mm-hmm. She, at this point, is pretending to be the demon of Yurik Bernison, the exiled bear. And she proves, or tries to prove, that she is his demon to Yuffa Rackneson by saying she will answer a question only he knows the answer to. Mm. She goes off in her little room with her to consult the demon voices or whatever she says, and she comes back with the, with the true answer, and he believes her, allowing Yurik to get his one-on-one fight. Yeah. And I I think I find this, this moment more important than you do, don't I? Yeah, definitely. I, I don't really see the alethiometer as playing a big role in this. I more see it as Lyra. The alethiometer just gives her the one piece of information she needs to do mm. her big trick. Yeah, I think I agree that I, I don't think it's a particular statement on the alethiometer itself, but I think it's another 
kind of forward momentum that it gives us not directly because of its nature but the information it gives us is how sort of the lifelong bond between Yorick Bindersen and Lyra comes about this is this is how she gets her name Silvercomb mm. and so I agree with you it's not strictly about the alethiometer but it's the information that the alethiometer gives us again propelling the story forward and bringing about another huge relationship that is full of trust and full of almost obligation because you know you look at what happens in Trollis and what she does with Dr. Lansalius brings the witches in and what she, what she does on Svalbard brings in Jorik Bindersen and there are others later who we'll talk about in just a moment and it's it's a real sort of catalyst for a lot of the relationships that get formed because of what it can be used for yeah i can see that i suppose i haven't really thought about it in terms of the plot really and yeah definitely it's a big thing for lyra and yurik's relationship too true yeah and then i think that's kind of it for the big readings that happen in northern lights and then the next really big one is the first time we see somebody other than Lyra reading in Lithiometer at the beginning of the Salt Knife. Yes, and we see kind of the more traditional reading of the Lithiometer. It's mm-hmm. from Pavel with all of the books and taking days, weeks to come up with an answer, which is much more the standard yeah. method. Everyone is completely shocked with Lyra's speed. And obviously the ability to read without the books of reference. Frappavel is trying mm. to find out about Lyra for Mrs. Coulter. And she becomes so frustrated at his uh, lack of speed that she instead turns to torturing a witch to find out the answer. Yeah, and I think because the alethiometer has become mm. such a massive part of the information that we're given, it's been set up already as a real cornerstone of how we know things and so far the only one that we've known of in use in the story is Lyra's and for me it's quite a big realization that the other side has one too it's hinted at before but this is this is where we see that suddenly they have access to the same infallible information or almost infallible information as the, the good side, if you like. Yeah, it's it's not it's almost being used for evil. Yeah. You could almost say because the magisterium, if they find out the truth mm. about Lyra, they will want her dead. And the idea that it will give them that information and does eventually is very sinister and changes how we feel about this alethiometer that has yeah. almost felt like a character in the book now telling Lyra things and inferring information to her. And it, it's it's very different to know that same source of knowledge is being used for very sinister means as well. Yeah, I think so. And it, it does it does level things out a bit between sort of the, the two main sides of the of the story. It level it levels mm. things out between them when they can all access information through this this one means that they're that they're each using in their own ways. Yes, definitely. Mm. Okay, so then back to Lyra readings. And one of the first readings we get, and probably 
one of my favourite readings for the Alethiometer is after Will and Lyra have met each other in the cafe in Chittagatse, they've had a very awkward dinner and Will goes to bed exhausted, not caring about this mangy little girl he's found. Mm. And she sits outside his room and she asks the alethiometer who he is. And the alethiometer simply tells her he is a murderer. And she happily goes to bed comforted by that knowledge and it's one of my favorite readings it's my it's one of mine too i think yeah <laughs> she just goes oh well that's all right then i'll be safe with him yeah and again it's this it's this trust in the alethiometer all it does is it tells her that he's a murderer it doesn't say don't trust him get away from him and that kind of thing because it, it does it does tell her more at various points this time it's just He's a murderer. That's it. And, you know, yeah. the fact that it doesn't tell her more, there's this real relationship between her and whatever force is governing it, that she she trusts it. If it told her to run, she would run. The fact that it's not telling her to run, she takes as a symbol to stay. Yeah, and she... It's, it's almost like the alethiometer knows what she needs to know to trust him, and it wants her to trust him. Yeah. So it tells her what she needs to know, but it is also true. He is a murderer. Not quite in the sense that we would probably think of a murderer, but he technically has killed someone. Mm. And we also get this sense from the alethiometer, I think this is the first time it does it, where the alethiometer doesn't like her prying. Yeah. And she has this sense that if she asks too much about people, she could do it, but the alethiometer wouldn't like it and would either not answer her or would stop working. She has this innate sense of the relationship between herself and the alethiometer. Yeah. And none of no other reader ever comments on this. They trust that when they ask the question, they will get the answer. But Lyra, because of her special reading, she is much more dependent on the relationship almost. Yeah, definitely. Hmm. Yeah, and so she knows not to pry when the alethiometer has told her what it wants to tell her she doesn't ask any more yeah hmm. and then the next big reading is the formation of another really important relationship in this story which is when mm. Lyra meets Mary Malone and again it's used to bring out a piece of information that Mary has and Lyra until now does not have and it you know it's again it's this formation of trust yeah the alethiometer knows that this is an important relationship and it needs to be made we know later on from the plot why mary becomes so important but right then larry doesn't know mm. but mary malone had a deep dark secret that she used to be a nun and <laughs> left and Mary, you can only imagine how strange this is for Mary. A child walks into her research laboratory. She has also just been in a car accident. Oh. She walks in and pulls out a huge, uh, well, not huge, but a substantial golden object and proceeds to tell her <laughs> secrets about her life. She must feel like she's in a dream at that point. Yeah. I think she even mentions that she thinks she's dreaming. Yes. And it's, it's, it's this incredulity that you get from Mary, because, of course, this thing doesn't exist in her world at all. 
No, no, absolutely not. And it almost seems like magic to her. Mm. And being from Will's world and also being a scientist in Will's world, that is very alien to her. I feel like the scientists in Lyra's world are a lot more... Mm, they might accept the existence of magic, possibly. They're much less um, rational, I might say, <laughs> compared mm. to Will's, like, Will's world. Yeah. But it definitely works, and Lyra and Mary build their relationship, and we then find out about the cave and everything else that comes with that, which we might talk about later. Yeah. Okay, so then after that, we're still in the Salonai. The alethiometer is stolen by Sir Charles Latram, yep. who we later learn is actually Lord Boreal. And then we really kind of find out how Lyra feels about the alethiometer as well. She is completely heartbroken without it. It's almost as if part of her is gone. Yeah. Because her 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 only her main use for the plot is also gone at that point. Yeah. She is then just a child. Yeah. And you you see how bereft she is and how wrong footed we as the readers are because this guide that she's had is it's just not there anymore. And you end up wondering, you know, how the heck are they gonna get anywhere? How are they gonna get information? What you know, what what happens? This is it's a real crisis in terms of both Will and yeah. Lyra. Absolutely. They just it's not clear how they'll carry on from that point. Lyra doesn't really have too much of a uh path at this stage, mm. but she definitely knows she needs the elite for whatever it is she needs to do. Yeah. And She's she's just a, a lost little girl who can't do anything without mm. it. And so it becomes imperative that they find it again. And luckily they do. Mm-hmm. And then you also get a really important moment after that oh. where Will gives a huge sacrifice to be able to get the alethiometer back for her. Mm. It's the main reason they go and look for the knife because that's what Sir Charles wants in exchange. Yep. And Lyra, from that point, promises to him to never use the alethiometer except to help him in his quest, which is mainly to find his father Mm. and then changes later on. But she promises to only read for him from that point onwards. Yeah. And I think she actually does stick to that pretty well throughout the book. She does. It it, it sounds sounds a lot lot worse in terms of a power play than I'm actually saying it because... From that point, really, they become almost a unit. They do. What what he wants to do is what she wants to do as well. He also travels halfway around the world to go and find her again after she's stolen. So it's not like she's sort of a servant to Will, but she promises the alethiometer to him, mm. almost in gratitude for his sacrifice, getting it back for her. Yeah. And this mm. interplay between the alethiometer and the knife comes about very strongly in The Amber Spyglass, when Lyra asks the alethiometer whether they should remake the knife when it breaks while Will's trying to rescue her. And Yurik Bjornsson says, I'll only help you remake it if the alethiometer says that this is what we should do. And it, again, it's really interesting. It's it's again that trust in the answer. Yurik Bjornsson is very earthbound and very he's not he's not a mystical creature and he can appreciate the power of this thing so, so the reason he asks them to ask the alethiometer is because 
he he understands one side of the knife mm. but he cannot understand the other side and he doesn't and he can't see the end of it mm. and he doesn't he says he's never seen metal he doesn't know the purpose of yeah he tells them to ask the alethiometer basically what that's what that does and what that means and if it should be done and lyra really doesn't it's the first moment we see the alethiometer in conflict with itself almost. Yeah. You have this thing of truth not not believing itself or arguing with itself. And it's a very unsettling moment for her. Mm. But she somehow, through all of this, gleams the perspective that it should be fixed. Yeah. And we can only imagine part of the reason for the alethiometer being so um, disagreeing with itself is that the method by which it works, dust, can also be destroyed by the knife. Yeah. But it also realises that in order for things to be saved, they need to go to the world of the dead, and the knife is the only way to do that. Yeah, and it's it's very clear about them going to the world of the dead a few chapters later. Yeah, it, I think it, it says to follow the knife. Follow yeah. the knife, and the life will need lead you there. Yeah. Hmm. But so from that point, they, they are very tied together. Almost the reason for the nice existence from that point on is due to the alethiometer. Exactly, exactly. Because it would not have been fixed if Lyra had not got the answer from the alethiometer that that was what needed to happen. Yeah. Okay, so we've gone to the world of the dead then, and Lyra and Will have left it, and we now end up in lord asriel's world the republic mm. and we get another reading from someone who isn't lyra we get mr basilides the poor man who has been up practically all night or the last two nights by this point yeah. reading the alethiometer um the, you get the impression that the alethiometrists who are not lyra are rather put upon people they don't yeah. seem to have very peaceful lives no but in a world where there's only half a dozen points of access to this information and when the stakes are so high, you know, the, the alethiometer in Lyra's world, outside this story, it's, it's, a, it's an academic and philosophical curiosity. And then suddenly, you know, you've got these academics who are suddenly being catapulted into this massive, world-changing story that they didn't really mm. sign up for, I don't think, you know? No, you you get Mr. Basilides, who you get the impression has just been a quiet man doing his studying before, and he's suddenly on a war council with a, a very powerful angel, a king from another world, Lord Asriel himself, who has no mean feat, and the Galavespians, and you have Mr. Basilides just there as well. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it doesn't really seem his place. No. But he gives this very important reading to Lord Asriel and Mrs. Coulter, yeah. About Metatron's plans for the children's demons. And that pushes Mrs. Coulter and Lord Asriel into their final actions to save them. Yes. And those final actions not only seal their own stories, but it it brings them together as a unit to help their daughter. And again, mm. the information that the alethiometer gives is trusted to the point where Lord Asriel and Mrs. Coulter will join forces. I don't think you can overstate the importance of that moment. No, and 
but by this point, Mrs. Coulter has very much been trying to do her own thing for Lyra and doesn't really trust Lord Asriel caring for her in any way. Mm. She's stolen a gyrop, uh, not a gyropter, uh, the intention craft to go and try and save Lyra from the, from the consultorial court, thereby putting her in far more danger than she ever was before. But mm. she gives up by this point. Then she has one final thing she can do, which is to join with Lord Asriel and destroy Metatron. And mm. in accepting that, Mrs. Coulter must also accept she will never see Lyra again. Which, yeah. by that point, her love has for her has really taken over. She describes it as a mustard seed sprouting and taking over everything inside her. Yeah. And Lord Asriel, you, you get the impression he probably does love Lyra, but he's he probably doesn't know how to love her, maybe. Yeah, it's a very stiff upper lip kind of love, isn't it? Yeah, it's almost like he doesn't really... He wants her to be 20 straight away, and then he'll be able to talk to her. Yeah. He doesn't seem to understand the childness of Lyra. But he <laughs> is. he seems very happy, or not happy, but resolved to fight to save her and destroy Metatron. Mm. He's perfectly happy yeah. with that being the end of his life. Mrs. Coulter, it, it's devastating that she'll never see her again, but she accepts it and works with him. Yeah. Yeah. And mm. all because of the information that we get from the alethiometer yeah. telling them that that's, that's what they have to do. So yeah, it's a, again, a catalytic galvanizing force. And then the very last sort of, sequence we get with the alethiometer after will and lyra have achieved their their primary goal in the world of the dead this whole sequence is about the loss of the alethiometer and mm. when it stops working for her yeah it's one of the most painful things to read it it's it's like i, I believe also lyra describes it like this like losing a friend yeah like someone has died Mm. because the way that philip pullman has been writing the way it gives the answers it doesn't say you know it's, the, the needle flicked this way and that and said this symbol and that symbol it just the answers are coming so fluently it's like it is written like an entire extra character which mm -hmm. makes the loss of it all the more awful yeah and the part that really gets it, gets me during that whole segment is that they've just found out all this terrible information. Um, the demons have told them that the knife creates spectres so they won't be able to travel between each other's worlds easily. Um, they know that dust is seeping out of the corners of the worlds through the windows and they know from Will's father that they can't live in a different world than the one they were born in. Their demons must live mm. their whole lives in their own world. And they are, the, all these things seem to be trapping them. And Lyra suddenly has a moment of hope and she goes, I'll ask the alethiometer what to do. And she's so hopeful in that moment that it will solve all of her problems. And then it just doesn't work for her. And that mm. crushing rise and fall is what, makes me cry probably every time when I read that part. Yeah. It's, yeah, you know, the, the doors are being slammed on everything they want to do. 
and everything they can think of that would allow them to be there. And the alethiometer, which has always been this one reliable source of information, has always shown them the right way. And suddenly she, she can't even hold it the right way up. Like everything just falls apart. And you just, you watch her world crumble because it's this one instrument that has propelled so much of her story. And now suddenly she's in a different world, facing the loss of her great lifelong love. And yeah, it it is absolutely heartbreaking. Mm. And so then from that point on, she... She, she is a little lost. She goes back to her world and she meets with the master and Dame Hannah. And Dame mm. Hannah promises to teach her the alethiometer again. And at, yeah. at the end of that book, Lyra, she's 13. She's seen an incredible amount of trauma. She knows what's coming at the end of her life. She knows where she'll go and she's accepting of that. She's lost her great love. She does feel very much like she is nearly the end of her life. She's done everything. And yet she has yeah. a whole life left to live. And she has nothing to fill it with. And Dame yeah. Hannah gives her a strong purpose in that you could learn the alethiometer really and truly. And it, mm. it, it does almost like a lifeline at the end for her. Yeah, massively. And it's it's sort of, it's being able to get back at least a remnant of the grace that she had that allowed her to read it. And I I like that. It's, it's this is a really this is the point from the Marionette Theatre, isn't it? Yeah, so we uh, on the Marionette Theatre we should say was probably a huge influence for Philip Pullman writing the books. He's talked about it quite a few times. And mm. it's an essay from eighteen ten. And there's this quote that when we were reading it, really struck out. Now that we've eaten of the tree of knowledge, paradise is locked and bolted and the cherubim stand behind us. We have to go on and make the journey round the world to see if it if it is perhaps open somewhere at the back. Mm. Yeah, so the, it's this idea that when you when you become knowledgeable about things, the first thing is that you become self-conscious. And you lose that grace that's just sort of allowed you to flip freely around. And you can't go backwards and regain that. You can't become a child again. You know, knowledge is kind of a, a one a one way process. And yeah, the, the the idea of finding a back door and coming full circle and trying to get back to where you to where you started. That's exactly the concept that Hannah Ralph is talking about with the kind of alethiometer reading that Lyra will be able to achieve after many, many, many years and decades of work. Yeah, I believe um, Zephania says it the best is you read it, you read it by grace. You may regain it through wisdom or something like that. I think the quote is yeah. something like that. Yeah, you can't get Grace back. That is not coming back for her. But she can get wisdom. Yeah. Yeah. So in all of these readings, we see that alethiometers in general, and particularly Lyra's, are very much the driving engines of the of the entire story. 
um, and in a story that's about philosophy and right and wrong and truth and power, the alethiometer crystallizes a huge number of the issues at play. And I, I think it is one of my favorite objects that we come across in the whole trilogy. Yeah, probably for me too. It's a very ingenious way of doing a plot dump. I am reminded of Hermione Granger, who every time it's, I read something in a book. And that's (laughs) sort of, it's great, but it doesn't wear a bit thin after a while. Whereas the alethiometer, because it feels almost like a character, it feels a lot better. And it's very Mm. well done. And it doesn't always give all the information and it requires a bit of human interpretation. So there's some human error thrown in there as well. Yes, there is. Okay, so there's all the facts and things from the actual books that we know really about the alethiometer. And then we also had a little bit of fun learning about the real world connections, I think, with the alethiometer. Yeah. So I think you, you probably looked into a few more of these than I did. But first of all, there's an issue about about what the alethiometer is made of. So this is, it's one of my bigger hills on which to die over his dark materials Um, and it's the issue of whether it's made out of gold or brass and UK readers will note that when the master gives Lyra the alethiometer it is described as being made of brass and crystal and there's the whole issue about the golden compass and what it actually means and people have used that to assume that it's made of gold and even the film never even uses the word alethiometer it's always the golden compass so it, it came about because of a mistake in the title of the book when it came to being published in america and as as we know various books have been published under different titles in the us in the uk so harry potter and the philosopher's stone becomes harry potter and the sorcerer's stone that kind of thing and mm. one of the problems was that they didn't think that Northern Lights would be a very marketable title in the USA. At the same time as this, Philip Pullman was trying to work out what the whole trilogy was going to be called. The title of the trilogy, His Dark Materials, comes from a quote from John Milton in Paradise Lost. Mm -hmm. And the dark materials are what God is making all of the worlds out of. Another option that Philip Pullman came up with was the Golden Compasses which appears also in Paradise Lost. And it's the instrument, it's the, the geometrist's tool that you use to draw circles. And basically, you know, this is the idea that God is mapping out the world with these tools. And he was sort of torn between that and his dark materials for the title of the trilogy. There was a mistake somewhere along the line with the American publisher who mistook the golden compasses for the golden compass and put it as the title of the first book. And by the time they realised the mistake, it was too late. They were too far through marketing. So we are stuck with the Golden Compass. And it's now been retconned in the American versions of the book. And the full cast audio book also has Golden Crystal. Yeah, because that's what that's what I was thinking of. When I think of the Elysium, I always think of gold. And it's because I have read the books, but the main way I've process them is through the full cast recordings because mm, I think same. they're the best so yeah when I, I always think of it in gold yeah mm. I never think of it as brass yeah and actually 
we're not going into Book of Dust spoilers per se, but in the Secret Commonwealth, it is confirmed as definitely being gold, despite having been brass in the first book and indeed in the TV series, they've had it made of brass. And for me, having it made of brass makes so much more sense because gold is soft and heavy as hell. Personally, I think it's much more pragmatic for it to be made of brass. And I, I am certainly with past Pullman on this. I, I like the logic that then all three books are titles of the dark materials. Northern Lights does yeah. always stand out in that respect. But you couldn't call yeah. it the alethiometer, the subtle knife and the amber spyglass, even though really those are kind of the focal points of each book. Apart from that, it, it, it's not a good name. The Northern Lights is a lot more mysterious and good. Yeah. And in my head, the alethiometer will always be made of brass. And I there, there are some images I can't shake. Fair enough. Okay, so on that, and on appearance, I suppose, we found some real-world inspirations, equivalents. Yeah. Let's see. For the alethiometer, and the first one you found was an astrolabe. Is that right? Yeah, so an astrolabe is an ancient method of measuring the stars and Philip Pullman based at least the visual aspect of the alethiometer on some of the astrolabes that he saw in the Museum of the History of Science in Oxford. And um, there'll be links to photos and the exhibition of them that happened. Uh, that that's going to be in the notes. Um, so they're really they're really beautiful mm-hmm. things. I can't adequately describe them, but they are celestial instruments that were used to look at the position of the stars and because astronomy and astrology were massively separate back in the middle ages and the early modern period it was used to look at the influences of the stars as well as just their positions that is really fascinating and i love that a lot of science comes from that and you have famous scientists Mm. like isaac newton all of them were very much practicing Things we would very much not consider science these days. Mm, definitely. Yeah. But also creating wonderfully useful tools for the time, such as these astrolabes. Absolutely. Yeah, and astrolabes mm. were great for calculations on land or on calm seas, because celestial navigation was all you had at that point, really. You, you didn't have hugely extensive maps of the world at that stage, and certainly not ones that you could necessarily trust perfectly because people were literally writing this stuff as they went along and so being able to go by the stars they were about the most permanent point of navigation that you had to work with yeah but also the benefit of a map really relies on you knowing where you are if you don't know where on the map you are there's no point having it in any case exactly you very much needed celestial navigation to even work out where you were to use the map a lot of the time Mm. yeah it's a, it's a skill I'm very sad has kind of died out. Um, I, I mean, I probably, I, I can probably do a little bit, um, and I'm aware of quite a lot of the stars, but I, I mean, certainly not to the level that your average sailor would have been able to do it a few hundred years ago. Yeah, I'm, I'm not ready to give up my road atlas just yet. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm very much reliant on, G- on Google Maps. Yeah, same. So astrolabes were very much the the kind of mechanical inspiration for it. But in terms of the philosophy and the symbology involved, it was the idea of a memory theatre 
from a guy called Giulio Camillo in the late 16th century. And it was an idea of how you could organize information. And it was based on the structure of the theatre at the time. And it's basically an auditorium divided into seven segments, organised on seven levels. And through that, you had levels of meaning. So each of the seven hmm. seg segments was associated with one of the classical planets and the sun and the moon. And so, for example, if you looked at the Jupiter range of information jupiter is associated with air and so level one the most elemental level is air is a single unmixed element level two is air as a mixed element and right up to level six and seven level six is the natural function of breathing and level seven is sort of man-made mechanical inventions involving air and along these these seven different basic concepts, you could follow them up seven levels. And this was meant to be a, a way of organising all the information of the world. And as soon as you start talking about levels of meaning, I think the link with how the alethiometer works is it's quite compelling. And this is this is what Philip Pullman himself names as his primary influence for how he came up with the system of meanings in the alethiometer. Mm, I can definitely see that. In the book, it's described a lot of times as almost Lyra talks about stepping down rung of a ladder in her head, mm. um, yeah. which is very similar to up the steps of an amphitheater of meaning that way. Yeah. There's almost the meanings that are so, so clear, like the Madonna as mother or great feminine force almost. And then there's ones a lot further, further down that are maybe more tenuous and would require a bit more explanation. Yeah, like the chameleon meaning air. Yeah, I'm still not, still don't understand that one. <laughs> <laughs> mm. And this description of the memory theatre comes from a brilliant book called The Art of Memory by Francis Yates, which is specifically mentioned by Pullman in this chat. I would highly recommend having a read of it because it's it's a really fascinating concept and we don't have much from Camilo himself about how he made it work because he never got round to writing the book which I think is really sad Aww. I know right so that's the extent of the real world sort of trivia and associations that we can come up with this it's not nearly as extensive as it could be for characters or concepts because it is it's just an object in some senses and far more interesting is the philosophy within the book but there are real world links there are real world inspirations that philip pullman has given us and they absolutely do bear looking up i think i find them really really fascinating to explore yeah. in terms of what it can tell us Mm. So check out the links in the show notes if you want to learn more. There are many. <laughs> mm -hmm. mm. All right. So now we are going to dive a little bit deeper into some of the things we've been talking about before and have a little more of a discussion about some of the philosophy and the history, where it all comes from. So I think first we wanted to talk a little bit about alchemy and Prague, especially. Is that right? Yeah. 
So in terms of in-world history of the alethiometer, we don't get much in the original trilogy of books. We may get some later on in the Book of Dust, but until then, we don't have a great deal. However, when the National Theatre did its run of the stage play of His Dark Materials, there was a leaflet produced that explained a bit more about the history of the alethiometer. And I'd assumed that we wouldn't be able to find a copy of this leaflet anyway, because it's going to be a it's going to be a collector's item. You'd have to part with money and probably significant money to get hold of it. But it turns out that buried deep on the Internet Archive, there is a history of the alethiometer as written by Philip Pullman. And it's got some really fascinating points of history that, again, are backed up within our own world. As we know from Dr. Lansalius, they originate in the city of Prague. And they were kind of an accidental discovery alongside another one that, that the philosopher in question was trying to make. And we don't really hear much more about it at all. In this leaflet about the history of the alethiometer, we find out the name of the man who invented it. And he was a scholar called Pavel Kunrat, who lived in Prague during the reign of Rudolf II. Now, Rudolf II was, in fact, a real king. He was the Holy Roman Emperor at the end of the 16th century. And his court was very famous for having a large number of alchemists, both in real life and within Lyra's world. Prague was a real hotbed of alchemy. The, the tourist trade there plays on it really hugely. And he was trying to work out a way of looking at the influence of stars. And he made a very rare alloy of two very rare metals. And he suspended it over a celestial map, according to this history. And he found that he could influence the way that it moved through questions that he framed in his mind. And that was the discovery of the mechanism of the alethiometer. And it's fantastic. This level of in-world history exists. I absolutely adore it. But this, this is the interesting bit for me. Conrad soon discovered that the meanings and the symbol ranges already existed in some mysterious way, independent of his inventing them. He seemed to be discovering them, not making them up, as a mathematician discovers truths about numbers that are hidden deeply in the natural number system. So it's quite easy to think of the alethiometer as an invention and as going through some very subjective meanings. But actually, within the world of this invention and this process of invention, it's very much about the meanings already being there. And it's, it's like Lyra says, she puts her foot down and there's another rung of the ladder in the dark. So it's a fantastic little sort of snippet of scholastic history in Lyra's world that I, I really enjoyed looking up. Yeah, it is absolutely fascinating. And that idea of the symbol, the meaning of the symbols being discovered, not created, mm. is a very interesting philosophical idea. Indeed. Okay, so now it's time to dive a little bit more into the symbols of the alethiometer. There are 36. We don't meet them all in the main trilogy, but in the Royal Theatre programme, we do get them all, and we've included mm. the link for you to check them out. Yep. Each symbol has a primary meaning, 
And then there are lots of subsidiary meanings as well. Mm. So to pick out some examples, the main meaning of the anchor is hope, but it also has meanings of steadfastness and prevention. The apple's original meaning is sin, mm-hmm. but also means knowledge and vanity, which I find is really interesting. Yeah. And there are tons of examples and you can have some great fun coming up with them for yourself. We just had a brief discussion before we started the call about the candle. And my initial first impression of what the candle should be is hope. Mm. But the actual first meaning of the candle is fire, but it does have faith and learning as subsidiary meaning. So definitely have a look through these. Yeah. I would recommend covering them up and guessing for yourself because they are very interesting. Definitely. And so we can look at the symbols of the alethometer in terms of a little bit of philosophy as well. Mm. I was reading a very interesting book, which I think was a PhD thesis, I'm not 100% certain, where the symbols of the alethometer are compared to Jung archetypes. Okay. And to quote from that, the alethometer symbols represent archetypes, important symbolic motifs which reoccur in the collective unconscious, which I think really helps refer to that idea of discovering the meanings not creating them Mm. it's almost as if there's something that all humanity agrees on yeah the best example it used was the hourglass referring to time and the madonna referring to the great mother yeah which i think if anyone saw a picture of the madonna and child you would immediately think of motherhood yeah no matter where in the world you were from yeah i agree yeah um and so that's that, That's one way of thinking about the alethiometer's meanings. I think it always runs into this problem, though, when you're trying to find universal concepts that will apply to everybody. And I think it's it's an inevitable, I don't want to call it a flaw, but a kind of hitch when you're trying to express meaning. And I think you're always going to end up with some slightly problematic assumptions because there are concepts that don't track immutably between every culture on the planet so yeah it, it does feel a bit problematic and one example might be i'm just having a look down the list here the dolphin to represent water mm. if you are from a culture that has never seen a dolphin how on earth are you are you supposed to know that that would mean water yeah and i think the explanation for that is actually pretty simple it's that you can conceptualize meanings and ideas but it's all about symbology and about emblemology and one of the inspirations Mm. that philip pullman used for the symbols was books of emblems and there's a brilliant quote from dr lansalius at the same time that he's talking about that little snippet of the history of the theometer we get lyra asks and where did they get the symbols from and his reply Oh, this was in the 17th century. Symbols and emblems were everywhere. Buildings and pictures were designed to be read like books. Everything stood for something else. If you had the right dictionary, you could read nature itself. It was hardly surprising to find philosophers using the symbolism of their time to interpret knowledge that came from a mysterious source. Oh, that's a fantastic quote. It is. And it it accounts for this idea that universality doesn't really exist in this sense. Because it is very much about a time and a place. And in the in-world history of the Alethiometer, Kunrath was using a celestial map. And of course, constellations and celestial bodies are named 
differently between different cultures. And so it's very, it's very much a Western culture centric way of looking at this. And, you know, you look at, you look at the I Ching, which is another way of reading the influence of dust. And it gives its answers in quite different ways and in quite different terms, but it's still giving the same answers as the alethiometer. So once you situate it very clearly within the culture it came from, the symbols make a lot more sense. Hmm. Yeah, that's very wise. So you could almost see every culture having to come up with their own alethiometer and being led that way. Yeah. Hmm. Which is not particularly useful in the world, but oh well. <laughs> not really, not really. No. Happy days. <laughs> okay, so now we're going into what has been bugging me since we started planning this episode, which <laughs> is thinking about knowledge. I sat down to think about what to say in this episode and questions flooded my mind. And mm. I'm going to now annoy you all with them. But first of all, we're going to talk a little bit about knowledge and understanding. Yeah. So Lyra, as we've mentioned, first reads the Lithometer by grace. She doesn't have wisdom at this point. She's a child. And there have been some key moments where she doesn't quite interpret the Lithometer correctly. And one that is noted by many people and by Lyra herself is where she misinterprets reading that she is bringing Lord Asriel exactly what he needs. She, of course, assumes that it is the important tool she has, the alethiometer. She idolises Lord Asriel. She, of course, assumes he can read this thing as well as she can, because he's a learned man. But, of course, she's not interpreting the alethiometer correct at all. Lord Asriel wants Roger and doesn't care about the alethiometer. And she is utterly shocked when she arrives and he dismisses her and the object. And she's heartbroken. She's travelled all over the north to get to him. And yet that's what he treats her with. Yeah, I was not a fan of Azriel in that moment at all. No, definitely not. I mean, shortly followed by the fact that he then kills Roger. He really strikes himself as a bad guy at that point. And you're almost mm. glad that Lyra didn't give him the least young and, and there, are, there are probably other key moments where Lyra misinterprets, but that is definitely the most serious and most striking of them. Mm, and I think so. You, you get the impression that one day when she learns to read it properly, you must input your own wisdom into the readings to be able to really interpret them properly. Yeah. So it becomes a mm. much more subjective way of finding truth because you need experience to read it. Yeah, which brings us on to then the next point is what the nature of knowledge kind of is in the series and what Pullman wants to tell us about knowledge. So mm. as I was reading, I learned that there are two kinds of theories of knowledge, basically. Uh-huh. Empiricism and rationalism. Okay. So empiricism, truth is presented as ephemeral and in flux and subjective, according to subjective witness. Rationalism, mm-hmm. truth is objective, universal and an abstract concept pre-existing the mind. Okay. In the book, generally, you would probably say that it's more presenting empiricism. The sort of flat truths of all time of the magisterium are widely um, decried and seen as wrong. But there is something of rationalism in there, too, in that 
For symbols of the theometer are being discovered, they're not being created. They do seem to pre-exist. Mm. But is that because Kunrat was approaching this as an already learned man and inputting his experience and his wisdom about things? Because he will have already had chains of association going on in his head anyway. Mm, absolutely. I wonder if it is sensible to take it as read that he was indeed discovering them or whether they were again a product of who he was and what he'd already known yeah and so it maybe felt like he was discovering them but really it was just him yeah kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy almost yeah and particularly in a world where symbology and emblemology was so so strong you had this real cultural mm. sense of what these things meant already you know this isn't just yeah. some guy sitting in a lab i'm much more inclined to think of it as cultural knowledge and collective knowledge that hangs together in that way rather rather than something inherent yeah so it's almost like of the time everyone is bilingual yeah mm -hmm. okay so that's a that's a little bit of tiny bit of background about knowledge and understanding that i thought mm -hmm. might be useful to know and now we're going to get on to some complicated things Yay. that I do not have answers for, but I want to discuss them anyway. So the idea of knowledge presented by the alethiometer, when I really started thinking about it, is quite strange. Mm. First of all, how does it know things? We learn later that it is angels and angels are just structures of dust basically yeah. which so basically they're just coalesced consciousness yeah and that's okay we can take that as red but how do these angels then find things out to tell lyra via the alethiometer when she asks about plans of people halfway around the world or in a different world how is that answer coming to her immediately mm. do you have any ideas no Honestly, I I don't. No. I think it's I mean it's very clearly to do with dust. That that much is made mm. very explicit in the books. But it's it, I it, I don't know at all how that works. Yes, definitely. I I was starting to imagine some kind of telepathic angel intelligence, but that clearly doesn't exist because Baruch and Balthamos mm. Um, had to go and physically hear information. They couldn't just find it out. So are angels just aware of mm. everything in the world and able to pass it through the alethiometer? How, do, how does it know things? I then thought about what does it say about how we know things? Do the angels also see into people's minds? Can they read people's intentions? Because some of the plans revealed by the alethiometer are secret. Mm. They've not been told to any person. They exist in someone's head. Yeah. And yet the alethiometer can see them. Yeah. They're slightly mind-bending. Yeah. I think for my money, dust is very clearly a, a, a worldwide and universe-wide and intra-universe phenomenon that allows for consciousness i think it's often a question of interpretation as to what it is saying and how and how you get answers again that much is that much is abundantly clear 
I think that the question of innocence and experience does also apply to angels. Because you know with Baruch and Barthamos, I can't remember which one of them it is, but one of them used to be a man and one of them has never been a man. And it's about proximity to whatever the origin of angels I see. is. For reference, um, Baruch was the one who was a man and uh, Barthamos was always an angel. But mm -hmm. yeah, the idea of innocence and experience prior to angels is definitely something I could see as well. Hmm. Yeah, because Metatron is portrayed as extremely arrogant and as setting himself up as regent, as, you know, the, the, the protector at the point where the authority can no longer rule. And that becomes a very human kind of power dynamic. And I think it's a mistake to think that angels are purely creatures of dust with no earthbound stuff going That's on. That's true. And you also get this um, talk from Metatron, which I'm sure we'll go into later, and from other angels about craving physicality because they don't have physicality. Some of them had it before and are even more desperate yeah. for it. Some of them never did. Mm. And so, yeah, definitely that could also play into it. Hmm. Okay, so another question for you is what happens when angels disagree? We get this impression it's not a single angel who is responsible for answering all the alethiometer questions in the world. Um, and we've had bits from Lyra where the alethiometer seems in conflict with itself, suggesting multiple perspectives. So if multiple angels disagree on a subject, who gets to decide what the answer should be? So I think the link between angels and dust is somewhat explicit, but not always entirely. So if you look at the conversation in chapter 12 of The Subtle Knife, where Mary Malone is talking to the computer and she says, are you shadows? Yes. Are you the same as Lyra's dust? Yes. And is that dark matter? Yes. Dark matter is conscious, evidently. And then later on, she said the answer comes back as something humans have always known us. Us, there's more than one of you, uncountable billions, but what are you, mm. angels? And so there is a link between angels and dust, very strictly then the next question angels are creatures of shadow matter of dust structures complexifications yes and so you get this idea that what angels are made of and their nature is spirit and what they do with that nature and what they are there to do is angel so you've kind of got two mm -hmm. sides of the same coin on that so I think, I think that the dust that is moving the alethiometer isn't strictly an angel, but it is the same matter of which angels are made. I see. So it's not almost like an invisible being dragging it. No, no. I think I think it is 
dust that can coalesce into angels when they have a job to do. And angels without a job basically are dust. That's hmm. that's kind of how I see it. Because another structure or list of dust that we meet through the series are demons. Um, Pan at the end explicitly states that demons and dust are basically the same thing. And they are very, very different from angels. Mm. So to say that all of them are dust is very reductive almost. And doesn't really tell you a great deal. Yeah. But I think... I think maybe you can say the same thing of Mm. demons, though. From the name of their nature is dust, and the name of their office is demon. And it's about dust, again, about dust doing different jobs depending on whether you're looking at it and in what way yeah. you're looking at it. And so there might then be some kind of different demon, uh, dust knowledge system throughout the world. Mm. And we know there are, because the I Ching mm. is a way of seeing yes. it. Um, as Mary discovers. And... For the Mulefa, you can see dust itself. Well, they they can see dust itself, and when Mary makes the spyglass, she can see dust as if mm-hmm. it's a physical manifestation. Yeah, they the the swirls and movement of dust in their world seem very important. Mm, absolutely, and I think that at that point, it's about manifestations of the same thing, because dust itself is not something that you can grasp. And it's, I think all of these things are translations of the idea of dust into realms that humans can actually understand. Yeah, no, yeah, that, that definitely makes a lot of sense. So that's where you bring the symbols in, because the symbols are ways of reading what dust is telling you. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. And of pinning down the concepts that you're being given at any given moment. So, yeah, it's... All of these things are translations of dust into things that people can understand. Because, you know, you you look at the angels, you can't quite see them or pin down what they are. And the same with the answers. They they only make, the answers from the alethiometer only make sense when they are pinned to these symbolic meanings that have to be discovered. And so I think that knowledge is then presented as another manifestation of dust that people can actually experience generally because otherwise it just exists on a celestial plane that you can't access definitely and so that brings me on to kind of another question i was thinking of which is does the alethiometer almost get a choice in what it answers or how, how much it answers or if it even does we have this we have this knowledge that both sides of good and bad to use air quotes have alethiometers and get answers from them but Lyra also gives a different perspective that it kind of stops her knowing too much it it gives her the impression it doesn't want her to know or ask some things Mm. and it stops her and so if there's this extra force of dust that moves the alethiometer which might be an aim which might be an angel and explicitly, I suppose, is an angel, but not the kind of angel like Brodukin Barthamas we've met before, then it almost doesn't get a choice in whether to answer, but it can 
put its own perspective on it as well. I think this is where destiny comes in, though, because the answers that it gives Lyra and the, the answers it keeps from Lyra or suggests that it's not going to give her, those answers that we get are ones that are important in terms of her destiny, aren't yes. they? Yes. So when it gives her more information, when she's asking about going to see Mary Malone or where she can get help, it tells her more than she actually asks and she can sense that it's going mm. to do that. And I think at that point, there's an overlaid force of destiny because the she is helping the angels of the rebellion in their quest against the authority in Metatron. Yes, yes. Right. Um, she's explicitly doing things that will help their aim. Yeah, exactly. And she doesn't she doesn't know she's doing it, but it is still destiny because if you go back to the prophecy that the Master makes at the beginning of Northern Lights, she has a great destiny, but she must not know that she's doing it. Yes, absolutely. And so the knowledge that she is given enables that. Yeah. And it is, it is dust and it is angels, but there is definitely a sense that it is, that there are rebel angels involved, because if there weren't, she wouldn't be getting the answers that have that slight level of autonomy where she can sense that the alethiometer wants to say something or doesn't want to say something. Yeah, I'm thinking of one specifically in relation to Mary Malone, where she's finding out about it, uh -huh. and then the alethiometer tacks on at the end do not lie to the scholar. Yes, yes, that's the moment I was thinking of. And that's not asking... She hasn't asked what she should do. The alethiometer, she mainly asks about how to talk to the... Uh, how to find her. And then it just gives her an instruction. Yeah. It wants something from her, which does not seem to be part of the alethiometer's job in any sense. No, it's not part of its normal MO, is it? No, no. And you... Maybe get the impression it doesn't do that for all of its readers. No. It would probably be strange if it did that for any of the others. Yeah. It doesn't seem to have the personality when they're reading it. But then that's, I think that comes back to the question of grace and doing things unconsciously and unselfconsciously versus having to learn it from books to get to relearn the information. Yeah, yeah. That intuitive knowledge is definitely very different. Yeah. And you had you had one last question. Could a demon ever use the alethiometer? Ah, yes, yes, I was thinking this. Because, as we've said, de well, demons are very, they are basically dust, but they're also very human as well. There's mm. a, a lantern slide, I believe, which talks about what would happen if a cat saw a demon in the form of a cat. Yeah. And it says that they would see a human. Yeah. And that doesn't make a lot of sense, but maybe it does. Who knows? And so in that sense, then, would a demon be able to use the alethiometer if they physically had the means, as if they were the golden monkey, for example? Mm. And you do see that I think Pan helps Lyra on some scenes. Yeah. To watching and... I believe Fra Parvel's demon, or Mr. Basilides, seems to count how many times it stops. So the demons help. Yeah. And I just wonder, would a demon be able to use it completely? I think for my money, no. Because although humans and demons are part of the same overall being, it's the human intelligence and the human wisdom and the human grace 
that allows it to happen. We've seen when demons become separate from their humans, they are so much less. And I don't think that a human, a demon separate from its human could use the alethiometer because their consciousness is so intertwined. I don't think you could separate it enough that it wouldn't be the human using the alethiometer in some way. Yeah, I suppose part of this then gets into the relationship between humans and their demons of is one more powerful than the other, which comes up at some points. Mm. Yeah, and I'm sure we can talk about more when we talk about demons. Yeah, that's going to be a great episode. (laughs) Absolutely. So I think on that thorny note, that pretty much wraps up the conversation for this week, I would say. Yeah, I think we're probably there. We've exhausted the alethiometer until we can talk about the Book of Dust, at least. Yeah, and I think exhausted ourselves mentally trying to unknot these questions. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so as we said, we would love to hear your opinions and your thoughts on whether angels can disagree with each other and can demons use alethiometers. These questions are nothing if it's only us asking them. And we'd love we would love to be part of a conversation with you, our listeners, about what you think we've got wrong or what you think we've missed out or what you agree with us on. And you can do that as always by getting in touch with us through any of our social media channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at the retiring room or theretiringroom at gmail.com. Absolutely. And we will be back in hopefully two weeks talking about Oxford. Yes. Which one? You shall And hopefully we'll have some interesting perspectives on that. Yes. For now, I am off to dress up with a bunch of children as the Easter witch, which is a Swedish tradition. So I guess we should also wish you a happy Easter or glad Påsk. Yep. As that is what will be happening when this goes out. Yep. And we'll be back soon. We will.